Now, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we come to the third part of our outline here, the fullness of humanity. The fullness of humanity. Number two was the fullness of deity. Verse 23. When He began His ministry... Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Now stop there. The age of 12, as we talked about on Sunday, was considered the age of young adulthood or young manhood. But the age of 30 was considered generally to be mature adulthood. So you became a young man if you were male at age 12, at age 30. Now you're a mature adult. Now you're considered to be a complete adult. And Numbers chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, give this age, the age of 30, as a requirement for beginning the priesthood. So it's perfect. Jesus is our great high priest. He began his ministry at the age of 30, which fits with the law. But it goes on and it says... When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Yosek, the son of Yoda, didn't know he was there, the son of Yoanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur. The son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Yorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph. Rick, why are you reading them all? Because I was committed ten years ago to do every word of every verse of Scripture. So stay with me. I lost my place. Son of Joseph, right? Son of Yonam, the son of Eliakim. Did I miss any? Verse 31, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Metata, the son of Nathan or Natan, the son of David. Note that, the son of Natan, the son of David. Son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Cainan, the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, son of Adam, the son of God. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, we have previously talked about the unique differences between the genealogy given here in chapter 3 of Luke and the genealogy given in Matthew chapter 1. Both genealogies of Jesus and yet different. And the critic who really hasn't looked into it says, well, see, they're contradictory just like the Bible is contradictory. And they haven't realized why the two genealogies are different. You know why, I believe most of you. Matthew traces the royal legal line through to Joseph. Joseph's lineage, Joseph's ancestry is given by Matthew. Luke draws the human biological line through Mary. Now go back up to verse 23 and note this. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. 
Luke says at the age of 30, Jesus was supposed or assumed to be the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And part of me wonders if maybe by the time Jesus was 30, a lot of people had kind of forgotten about the whole kerfuffle with his birth. You know? It's been around for a while. Joseph adopted him. It's cool. We let that go. We don't, you know... Mary says he was, you know, it was a virgin birth, whatever. Most people had forgotten. Most people just assumed, here's Jesus, Jesus, Joseph's son. If nothing else, son by adoption. Problem here is that Ellie is Mary's dad. Well, how do we know that? Well, it's an interesting uh, supposition that people began to look at these two different genealogies and go, okay, they've got to be different for a reason. And I wonder about this Lucan genealogy because he uses that phrase, as was supposed the son of Joseph. And when you tuck that in there in the Greek, what that says is the assumption was that he's the son of Joseph, but he's not. Okay, then, so tell me about this guy named Eli. The Babylonian Talmud of all places contains a reference to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it calls her Mary, the daughter of Eli. Eli is Mary's dad. Why doesn't Luke just mention Mary here? Why doesn't Luke just say he was the son of Mary, the daughter of Eli, son of a thought, and then go all the way down the line? It's very simple. Luke doesn't mention any women in the genealogy. Matthew does. Luke does not. Why not? Because Luke is using proper Greek form in a genealogical record and the Greeks did not include the women in the genealogical record. Well, that's chauvinistic. Yes, it was. But that's the way it was and Luke is writing in good Greek form leaving the women out of the line so he doesn't mention Mary. That's why she's not in it. But he mentions her dad. He goes to Joseph who was supposed to be Jesus' father, but we all know wasn't. And then he goes straight to Ellie, Mary's dad. People reading it in the first century would have gone, oh yeah, Ellie, Mary's father. You know, people who claim the Bible to be bigoted or sexist need to understand that God gives value to men and women. It is God who values women. It is God who, throughout the Scriptures, mind you, God who said, women, I want you to have the place that I created you for, which is to walk alongside men, not over, not beneath, but alongside, next to. That's God's plan. And as a matter of fact, Galatians chapter 3 tells us in Christ, all are one, male and female. You're one in Christ Jesus. Well, so why the disparity throughout history? Because of the curse. Your desire will be for your husband and he will lord it over you. He'll rule over you. That's the way it is because of the curse. Genesis chapter 3. But that's not the way God wants it. And so we look down through the annals of time and people go, Oh, the Bible is such a bigoted book. It's so sexist. Yeah, that's why Matthew's Hebrew genealogy includes four women. Women of questionable reputation, by the way. Tamar who gave herself to prostitution, Rahab, the harlot, Ruth, who was a Moabite and an outsider to Israel, and of course, Bathsheba, whose name still just cracks me up because that's what she was doing when David, you know, and the whole thing. (laughs) So you Bible students, again, you know Joseph and Mary come along and they were both of the line of David. What we have in Luke chapter 3 is Mary's lineage. Joseph's lineage in Matthew goes all the way back through Solomon to David, Solomon David's son, 
But that line, you know this, was cursed at Jeconiah. King Jeconiah was so evil, God said, no one from this line will sit on the throne in Israel anymore. This is it. I'm done. Jeremiah the prophet proclaimed that. So from Jeconiah forward, and that's in Joseph's line, history. Joseph couldn't sit on the throne if he wanted to. And no one of that line. Mary, however, her lineage traces back through Natan, David's son. And I pointed that out to you down there in verse 31. The son of Natan, the son of David. And so Mary's line bypasses the curse that is on the line of Joseph. But there's still a problem. Mary's his mother. And the lineage is not supposed to be passed along to through the mother. It's really interesting because today Jewish people consider their heritage through their mom. Not biblically. Biblically speaking, your heritage always had to come through your father, through the line of your father. So even though Mary's line bypasses the curse, and that's important that it does, but even so her line bypasses the curse, there's still the problem that, yeah, but Mary's a woman. And that's not how you pass along the inheritance. Well, it wasn't, at least until something changed. The rights and the privileges of lineage always went to the male heir until five bold sisters brought their plight before Moses. And I want to name them because it says wherever the gospel is preached, their names would be mentioned. Mala, Noah, Hagla, I kid you not, Milcah, and Terza, the daughters of a man named Zelophehad. So Lafahad's daughters, Numbers chapter 27. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll just show it to you real quickly. Numbers chapter 27, these daughters of Zelophehad, Numbers 27 verse 1, daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer. <laughs> Perhaps that explains Hogla's name. The son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of the daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders of all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Bold women to bring this case up. Our father died in the wilderness, verse 3. And yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family? Because he had no son. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought the case before the Lord. Here are five sisters, no brothers, no one to carry on the inheritance. If there was a brother, he would carry the inheritance and it would be his responsibility to take care of and look after his sisters. God made sure his his daughters were taken care of. But where there's no brother, the inheritance goes away. It did in every other culture. Why wouldn't it in the Hebrew culture? But Zelophehad's daughters bring this case and the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 6, saying... The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, note this, you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Back to Luke chapter 3. Mary had no brothers. 
Well, how do you know that? Well, if she had a sister, Salome, and if it would be odd to name Mary's sister and not to mention any of her brothers, but she had no brothers. And further proof of this is, answer me this question, who did Jesus give charge of Mary to at the cross? John the Apostle. Why not one of Mary's brothers? Because she had no brothers. So along comes Mary. She has the hereditary right through the line of David, through Natan, all the way down to Mary, the hereditary right to pass along the inheritance and the right to the throne to Jesus, but she was a woman. If she had a brother, it would go to the brother. But she had no brother. See how God took care of everything? He made sure that through Joseph's line, Jesus got adopted, and so he was adopted adopted legally to have the right to the throne without the curse. Through Mary's line, he makes sure he bypasses the curse, and on top of that, make sure back in Numbers chapter 27, Zelophehad's daughter stand up and come forward, and the law is added to the books to protect the inheritance that would go to Jesus. Praise God. He really does look ahead. Mary legitimately passes on the Davidic heritage to Jesus. But critics come along and they raise another problem in the genealogy here. Verse 36, note this, it lists a man named Canaan or Cainan. The son of Cainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem. Now you can compare Luke's genealogy very easily by going to Genesis chapter 11. Or 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. Same genealogy as in those places. Luke obviously had those to reference when he wrote out this genealogy. Genesis 10, verse 24. All of these genealogies tell us this very simple fact. Genesis 10, 24, Genesis 11, and 1 Chronicles 1, 18 through 24 are all in agreement. Noah had a son named Shem, who had a son named Arphaxad, who had a son named Shelah. Well, wait a minute. Look right down there. It says, Sheila. Wait, there's Arphaxod. I see him. And then I see Sheila, but in between is Cainan. So according to Luke chapter 3, verse 36, Arphaxod had Cainan who had Sheila. But all the other biblical accounts only say Arphaxod had Sheila. There is no Cainan. Where's this additional Cainan coming from? What's the deal with this guy? Contradiction, the Bible's flawed. The critics love things like this. So what's the deal with this Cainan? And I will tell you honestly, no one really can put a finger on it. Some people have surmised that this man was omitted from the Hebrew text for some unknown reason, but perhaps the Holy Spirit told Luke, no, I want the name in there, and so Luke adds it back in. Others think that this might be a copyist error. And you know what? Normally I don't buy that. In this case, I think it's very likely that what we're looking at in our Bibles today in the English is a copyist error. Why? Because this is an error that was made after the 2nd century. Now listen, you might ask, can there be error in the Bible? And my answer is absolutely not. There is no error in the original Scriptures. In the original languages, they're flawless. And even in the translation we have to English, it is stunningly accurate all the way to this day. But with this one possible copyist error, the reason why this came up and people began to ask, well, maybe this name was kind of added by accident. 
And they just kept over the years after that. It's because we have an early copy of Luke, the earliest copy that we have on record anywhere. It's called the Bodmer Papyrus Codex. This codex is dated 175 A.D. It's the earliest copy that we have of Luke's Gospel. And it matches the Genesis and the First Chronicles genealogy omitting the extra Canaan. It's not there in the earliest Luke copy that we have. So I would say to you that sometime after the 2nd century, someone was copying in the Greek, and I've seen uh, mock-ups of this. If you look at the writing in the Greek, there's no punctuation, and it's just line by line by line by line by line. You can see how easy it would be to add Cainan's name just two lines down by accident at the end of the line, just like it would be at the end of the line two lines up. So perhaps Cainan is a copyist error. Perhaps it was an important name that for whatever reason God wanted back in there and would tell us at a later date. Either way, it doesn't matter. It really makes no difference. Here's the biggest difference between Matthew and Luke. And it's the one that I like the most. Matthew traces the Abrahamic lineage from Abraham forward to Jesus, focusing on the royal Jewish line of Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus and goes backward all the way to Adam. Why does Luke do it that way? He is establishing the fullness of Jesus' humanity. He is showing Jesus is not only of the royal line of the Hebrews, of Abraham, as Matthew already showed us. He's proving, he's showing that Jesus goes all the way back to Adam. Jesus is a man. Jesus is of the human race. He has full credentials as a human being, just like you do, just like I do. Luke here presents the universal invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A salvation that's offered to all people by a man who came of the lineage of all people even all the way back to Adam. Number four in our outline, the fight. The fight. Verse 1, chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. You think? (laughs) Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, as he faces the toughest tests of temptation in the history of humanity. What Jesus faced in those 40 days, I believe, was more difficult temptation-wise than anything any of us have ever or will ever face. And I want to point this out. He is full of the Holy Spirit. Which tells me that the best way to face temptation is to face temptation full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Spirit of God. Hebrews 4.15 tells us we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And people ask the question, well, was he? Was Jesus really tested, tempted in all things as we are? I mean, after all, when I look at the temptations of Jesus, I only see three. You know, Matthew lists three, Mark, Luke, they all list the same three. Note what Luke tells us. These three came at the end of the 40 days. Luke tells us Jesus was being tempted by the devil the entire time. This wasn't just three temptations. This was 40 days worth. Non-stop, a constant barrage. 
And again, I believe the temptations Jesus faced were far more difficult than any we ever faced. Why? Because He never caved. Because He never gave in. Ever. Because His response was perfect to the temptation. Think about it. When we're tempted, we do have the option of giving in. And sad as that may be, sometimes it brings a little relief. Last night I'm sitting there in bed. Sean and I are watching TV. And um, because it was New Year's, I ordered some Malamars. Do you guys remember Malamars? You can't even buy them in the stores. You have to order them. I got them on Amazon. I was so excited. Three boxes. <laughs> Malamars, that, that marshmallow sitting on the cookie drenched in chocolate. Oh, thank you. Lord for Malamars so I'm sitting there and I've got my box of Malamars and I, you know I'm telling Cheryl I'm just going to have a couple I'm just going to enjoy and stop right there and I had a couple more and a couple more after that and I think around Malamar number 10 I thought I ought to stop it's probably time to knock this off it's not healthy for me I can't wait till I get home tonight anyway We can give in. When we are tempted to sin, and I mean real sin, we can give in. And when we feel that pressure, I don't don't want to do this, but man, I I want to. we, We can give in. And then we do. And it's wrong. And it will hurt us in the long run. But in the moment, shouldn't have done that, but at least the temptation's over, you know? Jesus never did. Never once. And I guarantee you, of these three temptations that are listed, these came back at him again and again and again and again in his ministry. Don't you think after a long, difficult day, Jesus would have thought, if I had just jumped off the temple, they would have seen how spectacular that was, and more people would have believed, and I wouldn't have to be going through the mess with these 12 guys. (laughs) Again and again, these were the big ones But there were many more, and Jesus never gave in, never wavered. Now you might say, well, I thought the Bible says God never tempts. Yeah. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But you need to understand context. The context and the usage of the word. Temptation in the Greek is peirazo. And it has three meanings depending on the context. It either means to tempt, as Satan uses it, as in to lure into evil. It also is used to test. A a Greek man testing the strength of his bow would use the word peirazo. Is this going to be strong enough? I'm going to test it out. Peirazo. It also means to prove. To prove someone's Veracity to prove someone as trustworthy, to prove. And so, depending on the context, the word can mean any of those three, tempt, test, or prove. God does not tempt or lure anyone toward evil, but He does test. He does prove. And that's exactly what's going on with Jesus. The Spirit, we're told by Luke, led Jesus out into the wilderness to be proven. But understand, not to God. Not even to Jesus Himself. Jesus went through the temptations to be proven to you and to me that He's perfect. That we can trust that this perfect, sinless man is our perfect sacrifice. So that we would never worry, yeah, but there was that one time, you know, what if Jesus just isn't quite pure enough? He proved it. 
proven by the Spirit, proven by God. Now, Satan grabbed hold of that opportunity and said, well, I'm going to tempt. God may be proving, I'm going to tempt. And he did everything he could. But we know that the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 9 verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will He cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We'll look at these quickly here. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. We know from research biology what happens when a person fasts. We understand when it says that Jesus was hungry, get this, 24 to 48 hours into a fast, you are totally aware of how hungry you are. World Vision has a thing it does with teenagers around the world called 36-hour or 30-hour famine where students, and I've done it with youth groups in the past, students will fast for 30 hours to raise money for World Vision. And it's a great program. And it is insufferable to be with teenagers for 30 hours who are hungry. All they talk about is hamburgers, you know? Because the first 30 hours is tough. 48 hours, it's it's tough. But about the fifth day of a fast, and if you've ever done this, you know, you get about to day five and suddenly you're really not hungry anymore. You don't need it. You've kind of moved beyond it. And biology tells us a person usually won't even feel hunger again until around day 35 or 40. Somewhere between the 35th to the 40th day of fasting, you start to feel hunger. But the problem is, when the feeling of hunger returns, your death is imminent. The Bible tells us after 40 days, Jesus became hungry. What does that tell you? He's that close to dying. Right there. Jesus is about to die, and the devil says, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus responds, Deuteronomy 8.3, Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His belly was empty, but remember, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10. How do you know to endure it? If you're full of the Holy Spirit, you'll know. You'll always know how to avoid, how to escape. Verse 5. Then he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Does Satan really have dominion over the whole world to give it away, or is he lying? He's telling the truth. Satan has dominion. It's been handed over to Him. Mankind abdicated our authority over the planet in the garden. And we've been maintaining that rejection ever since. On Monday, the Associated Press said a satanic group unveiled designs for a seven-foot statue of Satan and wants it to be placed in the Oklahoma State Capitol where the Ten Commandment monument was placed in 2012. You ought to look this up and look at this statue. 
The New York-based Satanic Temple formally submitted its application to a panel that oversees the Capitol grounds, including an artist rendering that depicts Satan as Baphomet, which is a goat-headed figure with huge horns, wings, and a long beard that's often used as a symbol of the occult. In the rendering, Satan is sitting on a pentagram-adorned throne. But here's the worst part. Smiling children are looking up at him. And here's, by the way, where the temptation of Jesus reveals the devil's true intentions. The devil says, this has all been given to me. I'll give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, that's all I'm asking, just worship me and it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13. What passage of scripture do you think Jesus was meditating on in the 40 days in the wilderness? I'm guessing he was in the book of Deuteronomy because he quotes it every single time a temptation comes up. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, speaking of the devil, says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will descend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. I mentioned that statue of Satan simply to say, brothers and sisters, I expect that we will see increasingly brazen appeals to the worship of Satan, especially as these last days ebb away. But don't despair when you see this. Later in his ministry, Jesus said, John 12, 31, judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And the time is coming when Jesus is going to rule. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 says, The seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. So much for the temptations of the devil. Verse 9, He led him to Jerusalem. He had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Satan takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, probably the southwest corner of the temple complex. Because up on that corner wall, they would have been 200 feet above the Jewish masses on the stones below. And Satan says, from here, look at all the people amassed around. If you will jump off, think of what that will say. The Bible says he'll send his angels to protect you, and you'll be fine. And people will believe, what a wonderful example of Messiah. Come on, Jesus, jump. And up there in that place, Jesus says, not going to happen. Don't put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. Satan is quoting Scripture now. Throwing the book at Jesus. I should say he's misquoting Scripture. And by the way, this is where proof texting is a very dangerous thing because that's what Satan is doing. Proof texting is taking a verse, pulling it out of context, and trying to apply it to a situation in which it does not belong. Context is everything. Which is why if someone throws a verse at you and it's confusing, you go back and read several verses above and several verses beyond and see what the context is of the teaching and what the real meaning is of that verse. 
That's why, by the way, I give you all the verses behind me. It's one of the reasons. I, I want you to be able to go back and study, but I also want you to be able to say, uh, Rick, you used a verse out of context. I'm hoping you're checking up on that. Because every verse that I put up there, I study to make sure that's in the context as it was given. I'm not just using it to proof text the teaching. Well, Satan comes along and he starts proof texting. He says, hey, look at this. He'll command his angels concerning you. You know that Psalm 91 thing? He'll do that for you. The problem is, the context of Psalm 91 is the entire psalm is talking about trusting in the Lord, not testing the Lord. Satan pulls it out to say, test God. He said he'd do it. And Jesus says, you shall not test the Lord. It's not even what the psalm means. It's about walking in a life of faith and trust. And if you walk trusting the Lord, yeah, He's going to take care of you. He's going to look out for you. He's going to protect you if you're living a life of trust. And Satan completely pulls it out of context. Well, verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him, note this, until an opportune time. He's always looking for opportunities. So my encouragement to you is don't give him any. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? If he's looking for opportunities to cause you to sin in your life, just don't give him any and you're fine. <laughs> well, that's kind of dumb, Rick, because that sounds really easy. Don't give... Hey, the Bible said it. Ephesians 4.27. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Yeah, but the devil is wily. And he's, he's smart. And he knows how to trip me. So how do I avoid that? I'll tell you how. I already told you how. In Jesus on earth. In Jesus on earth, we are the Father's beloved, right? In Jesus on earth, we have the Holy Spirit. In Jesus on earth, we carry, we bear the sword of the Word of God. In Jesus on earth. How do you avoid the traps and the snares and the temptations of the devil? In Jesus on earth. You walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You stay in the Word. And you hear your dad calling you beloved. That's where you belong. And watch this. We'll finish here tonight. This is number five, the foray. The foray. Quickly, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread throughout all the surrounding district, and He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. The public foray, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He goes into the Galilee. The Galilee is, if you've been there, you know it's, it's a small region. It's not huge. In fact, it's been compared to the state of Connecticut. But, at Jesus' day, it had a population of over 3 million people. So the people are packed in. This is fertile ground for the Word of God to get planted. And that's where Jesus goes. He goes to the Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. A people living in darkness will see a great light, Isaiah said, Matthew quoted. And so that's where Jesus goes. But don't miss this. Look at the one verse. Jesus returned, verse 14, to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. I love that. Because this is immediately after the temptations. Wouldn't you think he'd be a little worn out by now? A little tired? He didn't go into the wilderness for a nice retreat. He didn't go down to the Dead Sea Spa. You know? He was out there being tempted and starving for 40 days. And after that, he comes into the Galilee and he's good to go. It is ministry time. It is his foray, his beginning of his ministry. And he is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And that's how you minister in the name of Jesus. That's how you do it. After the forerunner, Jesus came. In the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity and in the fight, He shows us what it looks like to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descended upon Him in His baptism. The Spirit proves Him pure in the wilderness. And now Jesus begins His ministry and He is strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit. And that's how we're invited to live. Paul wrote, Ephesians 3.16, that we be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. And Father, we pray You would fill us with the fullness. That we would be a people walking in the power and the strength and the anointing of Your Holy Spirit. That we would not rely on our own strength. And Father, that when we are weary of this world, our strength gets greater because of Your Spirit in us. Our joy overflows. Our love is palpable. Our peace is present. And all that comes with walking in Your Spirit. And Father, I pray this. I need this. I desperately need, Father, the fullness of Your Holy Spirit in my life. And I pray this over our body, over our fellowship gathered here tonight, and over the entire body of the Bridge Fellowship. Lead us by the fullness of Your Spirit. Strengthen us for the days ahead. And keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.